Uh, thank you again for uh, being here today. Um, if you're new, I'm DL. I am um, the lead pastor here at, at Harvest. We have um, a great, great, great privilege today to hear uh, from um, a dear friend of mine, a brother, a mentor, a pastor who has um, just been uh, many steps ahead of, of me and my generation of pastors, but one who continually uh, looks back to pull us along. His heart is for the church of Jesus Christ. His heart is for the kingdom of God and its advance, um, tirelessly giving himself so that uh, not just his church, but churches all around his region in the Chicago area, but in many other places throughout the world could be strengthened so that the beauty of Christ would be made known in these local expressions called the church. Um, he, a graduate of University of Illinois, Biblical Seminary, Gordon-Conwell, um, pursuing his doctorate degree. Um, is a, just a, a gift to us, a gift to the kingdom of God, and a blessing to the church. He pastors a church called Harvest Community Church outside of Chicago. Um, he's been blessing us through the word of God and just his... Um, powerful communication style, has ministered to many of us. Um, and excited. This is not even the halfway point of, of the journey for us as we go through this weekend. Um, but he's going to share the word again. So let's open our hearts as we welcome him with a uh, round of applause to come and share with us. like uh, I should begin this morning's message by giving the clear disclaimer that your pastor hasn't asked me to preach this message in particular. It's on giving. And I don't want you to get the idea that he said to me, get these guys to give more by preaching a convicting message about giving more. Uh, this is born out of my own heart. Um, because I've observed something about our generation that I really feel like God wants to unlock. I think the generation before mine made a lot of sacrifices in order to bring an entire wave of people from one country to another. And I'm speaking specifically to those in the immigrant community. And the reason they say that they did it was so that we could have more prosperity, more success, enjoy a better life than they did. And yet it has really troubled me to see that while that has been realized, our generation really lags in making huge investments in the work and the kingdom of Jesus Christ. Um, I have a church of about 200 adults, and the giving each year is about, I'd say, $700,000. It's enough to get a lot of work done, but based on our most conservative estimates of average household income, that still represents about 3.5% giving. So when I think about that, yes, I'm blessed that our people are giving, but just even at a tithing level, we'd be over $2 million church and I don't say that because I want to buy a big building and I want to have a fancy car and a Mercedes church van. and That's not why I'm saying all that. Here's why I'm saying it. Because through my ministry, my, my travels, and, and the increasing growing network of my church members, we are coming across so many amazing opportunities to make Jesus Christ visible in our world. It, it, it um, weighs so heavily on my mind when I come across opportunities to engage the suffering in the world and to elevate the visibility of our great Savior 
and the one thing lacking is money. I hate it. It makes something inside of me get all curled up in a knot, and I just want to scream and punch a punching bag and go, how can it be that we who have the truth and the power of the kingdom of the living God are daily confronted by things that are so worthy of our lives and our, our efforts fall short in the one place. The spirit is willing, but the wallet is weak. You know what I mean? And I just hate it. And I think of all the things that we could raise, money should be the least of the obstacle to the work of God. And so I'm saying this because I really believe that we're living in a world where the needs are increasing, where the call to share and to do good are right around every corner. And if we can be faithful, we can transform the world we live in for the glory of God. We can make him visible to his church. I think part of the reason that our witness as Christians falls so short is because our Christianity is largely about words. And the words may be eloquent and rich, but they're still just words. And they cost almost nothing, don't they? So anyway, let me give you a message from 2 Corinthians chapter 8. It's one of the texts that has challenged me personally so much. And I want to just also share with you that um, I'm not just saying these things to you, the laity. This text has done a deep work in my own pocketbook. And my wife and I have gone through a, something of a transformation in our own giving posture, and it hurts. And it's a big ouch, man. <laughs> and it's not like I, I'm a baller to start with, but when you live this way, um, it does change your lifestyle. It changes how you see yourself, but it also changes what it feels like to walk with Jesus Christ. So here's the text. I'm just going to read it through with you. I uh, want you to follow with me here. Um, is this thing working now? Okay. Weird. Okay, so let's do this. Um, you guys are driving with the PC back there, right? That could be the, that could be the, uh, if, you, if you upgrade to a Mac, um, <laughs> I'm fairly convinced that that problem will go away. Uh, if you could just trans go to the next slide here, and then just as I read through the text, flip to the next slide whenever we, we run out of slide there, all right? Here's the word of God. And now, brothers, we want you to know about the grace that God has given the Macedonian churches. Out of the most severe trial, their overflowing joy and their extreme poverty welled up in rich generosity. For I testify that they gave as much as they were able and even beyond their own ability, entirely on their own, they urgently pleaded with us for the privilege of sharing in this service to the saints. And they did not do as we expected, but they gave themselves first to the Lord and then to us in keeping with God's will. And so we urged Titus, since he had earlier made a beginning, to bring also to completion this act of grace on your part. But just as you excel in everything, in faith, in speech, in knowledge, in complete earnestness, and in your love for us, see that you also excel in this grace of giving. I'm not commanding you, but I want to test the sincerity of your love by comparing it with the earnestness of others. Let that verse sink in for a second. I want to compare 
to test the sincerity of your love by comparing it with the earnestness of others. Dirty trick if you ask me, but... For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor, so that you through his poverty might become rich. And here's my advice about what is best for you in this matter. Last year, you were the first not only to give, but also to have the desire to do so. Now, finish the work so that your eager willingness to do it may be matched by your completion of it according to your means. The Word of God. It's one of those passages rich enough that if I wanted to, I could sit down and just have us read the text over and over 15 times, and God would do a tremendous work without any help from me. But since you guys invited me, I'm going to talk for a little while, if that's okay with you. And I hope not to distract from the power of God's word, but to add some sprinkles to it that will help you accept it. And maybe God will use that to lubricate the way it goes down. Because this is one of those messages that you can't just go, wow, that was good. That was encouraging. That blessed me. It's meant to actually be like God's hand shoving up inside the center of your puppet and and moving you, transforming you. This is not a message to be blessed by, but to be changed by. And that process won't be painless. And so I'm hoping that God will use the preaching of his word to bring a revolution in your relationship to money. Generosity is a funny thing. It fills most people with two simultaneously strong feelings. On the one hand, it feels really good to be generous. I remember rolling into a village in Africa, and these people were sick as dogs. There wasn't a doctor around for miles, and not a single Kenyan doctor wanted to be anywhere near this place. This was a village where the, the pride, the, the rite of passage of becoming a man is if you could deceive one of your close friends, and when he trusts you and comes to your house, you kill him, and then you have become a man because you have won the confidence of someone you intend to betray. They look at people the same way we might look at livestock. A life has no value, human or animal. And that's the village we rolled into to do a medical outreach and to bring the gospel. Um, several of the members of my team were wealthy physicians who were on their first mission trip, and they really were like, do you have any idea what you're doing, Pastor Dave? Because we trusted you, but you could be the death of us. And as we rolled in and we saw several hundred people lined up, desperate, just for aspirin because their pain was overwhelming, and we were able to bring thorough medical care, it felt so good to meet a real need. It just felt so good. It felt so right. And I just thought about what life might have been like in this village had our team not come. And it made me feel it's like this is how we're supposed to live our lives. So generosity brings a very good feeling, but at the same time, generosity has this other effect. If we're honest about it, it sucks. Because at the same time, you're giving away something. In your mind, you're making a calculation. The opportunity cost of that gift Now, I measure everything financially in terms of its equivalent weight in Apple products, okay? So when I give, every week I'm writing my offering check, oh, dang, that's like this fraction of a new iPad. And I want a new iPad so badly, but I'm still hanging on to my first generation one. It'll do the trick. 
<clears throat> still waiting for somebody to just give me one, and it's not happening. But when I give, I translate everything financially into the economy that actually moves my heart. Maybe somebody's saving up for a Harley, and every time you write that check, you're like, oh, dude, this is like a monthly payment on a Harley. I can't stand it. And so there's this opportunity cost so that while you're enjoying the good feeling of being generous, you're also grieving over the loss of other things. Because to choose one thing is by definition to not choose another thing. Do you get that? Here's what's interesting about Scripture. One of the most common words in the New Testament used to, to um, signify generosity is the Greek word haplotes. And that's a word that could just as easily be translated single-minded or with an undivided heart. It's a really interesting word, isn't it? And what he, I think what the, the writers of the New Testament, what God himself intended to communicate to us was that as we mature in Christ, one of the growing marks of true generosity is that divided feeling starts to change. That you think less about what else you could have bought and you think more about what an amazing opportunity this is to convert something as simple and mundane as money into a new life, into changed life for others. See, in the hands, in, in our hands, money just becomes the power washer at Costco that we are so convinced we need to clean our driveway, but instead sits in the corner of your garage collecting cobwebs, and you never once power wash your driveway. That's what money is in our hands. Amazing intentions that are rarely fulfilled. How many objects do you have in your home that you just don't use? I mean, we've, we have really pushed this with our church so that we're learning to share more things. Why do you have to own everything? How many air compressors do we need in a congregation of 200? I bought one. I use it to drive my nail gun. I love nailing stuff. Pew, pew, pew. So I bought one like an idiot, and I thought, how often do I use my nail gun? And so I put it out there. We have a, a mobile app, and I put it out there and let people know I'm willing to share this, and others have used it very well. But if any of you ever buy an air compressor, I'm going to punch you in the face. Because <laughs> we, we already have one. I may own it, but we in our family have one. Do you get the idea? And so, so it's, it, we have, in our hands, money is just good intentions rarely realized. It's ideas that don't always get fulfilled. But in God's hands, money can become a saved life. Money can become beauty, glory, renewal. Money in God's hands turns into something called life. How is your heart when it comes to your relationship with money? How do you feel each time money leaves your house? Money is one of those things no one can be neutral about. Every one of us has strong feelings about money. And that's why pastors don't like preaching about money because everyone likes you till you start preaching about money. They're like, oh, no, you can't. that's a little personal. You could say that very easily, Pastor, because you got no money. I got a lot of money. That's just not right. You... You don't have to have a lot of money to know what God says about money. And by the way, God has a lot of money. But he's allowed to talk about money. Let me give you the historical context. If you go to the next slide, let me show you a map. Okay. You might wonder what these words written by Paul were talking about. 
privilege of giving and all that. Here's what happened. The, the Christian faith pretty much started down here in Jerusalem where there was a, a large movement, a renewal as the gospel was preached. And then it, all the, when Jesus ascended, he ascended from Jerusalem, remember? And all the, the disciples were huddled together in a house. And then through persecution, they, they spread. And largely through the work of the Apostle Paul, he planted churches all throughout Asia Minor and, and what, is, what is Greece, right? And he wandered as far up as down here, that lower circle in the upper left. That's where Corinth is in that green zone, okay? The city of Corinth. And to the north of that was Macedonia, where, where Paul also planted a number of churches, <coughs> including the one in Philippi. And so that's, that's what um, the, the historical context is, is from here, a terrible famine broke out in Jerusalem. And those who had started the Christian faith, so to speak, were suffering greatly. They were dying of hunger. And so they sent word out. They bore it as long as they could. And they said, this is, this is bad. We're going to die. And they started broadcasting the news to all of their scattered Christian brothers and sisters throughout the region. Can you send some help? We are your extended family, and we are dying over here. Can you please come and be a family to us now in our need? Most people don't go to that, that length until they're desperate for real help. And so the word went out, and then little by little, like remember that great scene in Lord of the Rings where, where um, they were lighting those torches as a signal, they were putting out a call, soldiers uh, of men from all over the, the realm come to our aid, and those torches were being like, oh, this is going to be awesome. And then you're like, but what if nobody comes? What if they all stare at the torch and they're like, I don't want to go and fight and die. So they stay home and rather hang out at home. But then you start seeing the first wave of soldiers come in, and the feeling's amazing. The word goes out, and then the response comes back. And that's what happened. Little by little, the churches scattered throughout the area started saying, yes, we hear you. We will pledge our help. And they began giving pledges, just like in today's telethons. We promise we're going to give this amount very soon. Be encouraged. And that news, that promise was the first wave of hope. And then the money started to trickle in. And that's the historical context of the writing of this to the Corinthian church. Now, here are some principles I draw. Because what's funny was that the Macedonians did better than the Corinthians in giving help. Even though, and you'll, I'll explain this in a little bit, that's exactly the opposite of what most people would have expected. So here are some principles. And the first principle, did you do that or did I do that? You didn't? Okay, you're tricking me, man. <laughs> when you see me do this, why don't you just click it? We'll pretend that it works. Um, a generous spirit often flows out of pain. I feel dumb doing it. Just hit the next slide, would you? Look at this. And now, brothers, we want you to know about the grace God has given the Macedonian churches. Out of the most severe trial, their overflowing joy and their extreme poverty welled up in rich generosity. If you knew Greek, you'd realize that Paul is using extremely strong language to describe the scandalous poverty that the Macedonians lived in. I mean, these people weren't just poor. They were what we call butt poor, dirt poor, poor as sin. They were so poor, other poor people felt sorry for them. You know that kind of poor? Like, there's poor, and then there's like, you're about to die poor. And that was the Macedonians. You can't say strongly enough how bad off the Macedonians were when they heard the news. See, so they groaned a little, I'm sure. They're like, 
we feel so sorry for them because they're about to die in Jerusalem. We're about to about to die. They're about to die. And you just, you sort of feel like, what, how can we really help? It's too much. And yet somehow the Macedonians gave and they gave quickly and they gave certainly. They didn't just send promises. They sent money. And so Paul is astounded by this. And here's the interesting thing. Not only were the Macedonians scandalously poor, but there, you know, in every country, in every region, there's one part of that area that all the others regard as the yokels. The less sophisticated, the less wealthy. You're not expecting Pulitzer Prize literature to come out of that. It's the way somebody in a high-rise overlooking Central Park in Manhattan might think stereotypically about someone in a trailer off the bayous of New Orleans. Are you feeling that now? No one's thinking, hey, I want my next brain surgeon to come from that trailer park outside of New Orleans because that's our stereotype. We think of certain regions as not producing the highest culture. And that's, those, those stereotypes are horrible, but they exist. And the, the way that that region thought about it is the Macedonians are a bunch of bumbling idiots. They're poor because they don't know any better. They're poor because they're too dumb to be rich. That was the prevailing prejudice. And so you can imagine then... How much it stung when Paul said, hey, listen, and by the way, this is a letter to the Corinthians. Hey, you dudes overlooking Central Park in Manhattan, off of Park Avenue, listen, you know, those guys in the bayou, they're out, they're out giving you. It's pretty embarrassing. The call went out. You could have farted out more money than they gave. But you know what? You couldn't even do that. And so let me just test the sincerity of your faith by comparing you to somebody else. Ouch. We have these stereotypes, but they're so often wicked and inaccurate. You think you have things figured out, but what's so amazing is that the poor statistically, and this is based on repeated numerous academic studies, as a proportion of total income, not just raw dollars, but a proportion of income, the relative cost to me the poor outgive the rich on every single study. How do you figure that? I mean, it's easier for the rich to give because they have more, but then it's harder because they have more. And for the rich, too often, they don't have their money, but their money has them. And that's why, against all expectations, the poor outgive the rich in every study in the developed world. I have yet to read a single study where the rich outgave the poor as a proportion of income. And it's exactly the parable of the widow's might, isn't it? It's what Jesus taught. I know you rich fat cats come in, you jingle your big bag of coins and drop it in. But that widow with her two little mites gave more proportionally than the rich person. So God's not interested in dollars because he's got lots of dollars. He's interested in what that dollar, that gift represents in the giving of your heart and the totality of who you are over to him. That's what he's after. He's got money, but he wants your heart. Now, why do you think the poor outgive the rich? See, here's my theory. I believe the poor give more than the rich because the poor understand what need and pain feel like. That out of the place where they experience their greatest pain, they now empathize far better with others who are in the same boat. 
You know, the subtitle of this message was how to cultivate a generous spirit. And one of the ways that God will, genera- will cultivate a generous spirit in you is in the very area of your pain. Some people grow up in poor houses and their life's goal is, I will never be poor again. My revenge will be being wealthy and stepping on all the little people. But what God says is, out of your pain, God wants to make you generous in that exact same way. That's why some of the most effective youth workers are people who had the most painful teenage years. You know, I liked high school. I'd say often, I wish I could go back to high school knowing what I know now. Do you know how many people in my church say, high school was hell on earth? High school was a journey in exclusion, suffering, ridicule, insecurity, doubt, and lots of homework. Who would like high school? But, you know, what's amazing to me is the people who are serving in our youth group had some difficult years as teenagers. And it's out of that feeling, that certainty, I never want another kid to experience what I went through. They are so generous in the very place where they experience the greatest pain. And I think that's a powerful way that God works in our lives. You want to know where you're called to be most generous? Start by considering where you experience the greatest pain. You know, right now, um, adoption is a big ministry at our church because I can't explain what's going on, but there is such an epidemic of childlessness in our congregation. Couple after couple struggling to conceive. And we began to understand biblically that the theology of adoption is exactly the story of our becoming Christians. None of us but Jesus is the natural born son of God. But it says in scripture in Romans, we were adopted. Every one of us is adopted. We are made his sons through an act of grace. We become his sons and daughters because he decides you weren't my family, but now I'm going to make you my family. And so we began to realize this may be one of the reasons God is doing this. And so we opened our hearts to it. And now over 10% of the children in our church are adopted. And out of the pain of childlessness, God is generating deep generosity of spirit. And when I see these parents hold a child who did not come from their own loins and they hold them just like their own kid, it is such a powerful visual for me. It reminds me who I am to God and that he never once made me feel like I'm not his real kid. But I feel like his son. That's amazing to me. And I think that God will often work through you in the very places where you endure the greatest pain. Because you're sensitive in that area to what it feels like to be there. Can you hit the next slide? Let me give you a second thing. A generous spirit does as much as it can. Can you flip to the next slide, please? Um, you know, I've had a lot of conversations about tithing and giving with people in the church throughout the years. I don't think I've ever had an argument where someone's like, but Pastor Dave, isn't it possible we can give more than 10%? I really want to. you got to give me permission. I don't think I've ever had that conversation in 20 years of pastoral work. It's usually more of a negotiation. Yeah, I know 10% is like kind of the goal, but doesn't the New Testament not require a tithe? And can I get away with, look, 7.5%. That's my final offer. I sometimes feel like we're at a conference table sliding a number across. Slide it across. I look at it and go, uh-uh, uh-uh. It's so pathetic. 
By the way, do you know the tithe is getting off easy? According to all the required giving in the Old Testament, it added up to about 23%. God was as bad as the federal government, man. Here's the spirit of real generosity. It doesn't negotiate what's the least I can do. You ever have a talk with a teenager who's dating about physical intimacy? I can negotiate. What's the most I can do without sinning? I'm like, right away you're sinning because that question reveals just how wicked your heart is. You can't do anything. You can't even look at each other because you are just already fallen. When you're thinking, what's the, the most I can get away with, your heart has already violated the heart of God. If that's really your spirit, stop asking the question. Because you're trying to get credit for asking a question you don't even feel sincere about. A, a godly heart doesn't negotiate with God. It joyfully springs over, overflows from something real that's happening, so that you almost have to restrain the person. See, the mouth the Macedonians gave wouldn't impress too many people. It probably fed a small number of people, but it brought great encouragement because relative to their wealth, it was a tremendous gift. In fact, listen to what it says. It said that they had to urgently plead with Paul for the privilege of giving. He's trying to give the money, and Paul's going, dudes, I appreciate the thought, but man, you're like, like I said, they're about to die. You're about to about to die. Why don't you keep the money, live a little longer? Let me get the money from those Corinthians to the south. They got some buku dollars. Let me go down there. You guys really encouraged me with the thought and all, but please eat your own food. And they're like, yeah, I know, Paul. We get it. Look, look at us. We're emaciated. But we have to give this money. The Spirit of God is in us, and he is compelling us to give. If you deny us this chance, something will wither in us. You have to accept it. And they were having a fight. That's the spirit of generosity. It's not going, ah. Oh. Another, seriously, pastor, you got to stop asking me for stuff. It's too much. We're already in Ecuador. Now we're going to go where? Tanzania? Are you, are you smoking drugs? Isn't, isn't Ecuador enough? Come on. And that's the spirit of ungenerosity is it's always troubled by more and more. You know, the generous spirit, when God is at work, you have to repress it. You're almost worried on behalf of that person. Look, I love your heart, but you're going to die. Don't don't do anymore. It's too much. Feed your own babies. Do you get that? Paul was worried for them. And still they gave. There's a modern-day story that I just, uh, I just found out about from a good friend of mine. He ran a ministry called Churches Helping Churches. Um, it, it was started by James McDonald and Mark Driscoll when, they, when the, the aftermath of the earthquake in Haiti, they wanted to find churches that would partner with other churches in, in disaster-stricken areas. So they went and helped the Haitians a great deal, and the Haitians were so buoyed, uplifted by the help from the West, from America. And so here's what happened. When, when the tsunami hit Japan, do you remember that? Those horrific videos? And they found out the story that there was a church in Japan, in Fukushima, that was thriving. God was working. They had expanded to four different campuses, and all four of their church buildings were decimated by the tsunami. In one act of God, all the buildings destroyed. And now half these people were homeless, and as a church family, they were a wandering band of nomads looking for campsites to, to sleep in overnight. These people had become completely displaced by that catastrophe. 
The people in Haiti heard that story, and because of their own pain and fresh experience, they were deeply moved, and they put together 25 churches in Haiti. By the way, Haiti, do you know, is the, the poorest nation in the Western Hemisphere. And the Haitians, 25 churches banded together, and they raised a gift for those in Fukushima, Japan, in the amount of $3,224.05. Now that... 3,200 bucks will buy a, a case of noodles in Japan, okay? So we're not going to pretend that they built, rebuilt four church buildings with that gift. Financially, it's not a lot, but here's why it was so memorable. Because the annual household income on average in Haiti is $450 a year. $450 a year. The average household income in Japan is 45 times greater. And yet the Haitians, and this represented a fortune to them, they could have, in fact, built four buildings in Haiti for that same amount. And they needed those four buildings badly. But when they prayed, they said, our hearts are shaking because our brothers in Japan are our Christian family, and we can't bear the thought that they are suffering and we do nothing. So we can go on meeting under the open air, we don't need a building, but they need homes. And they gave this gift. And I got to meet the pastor, Akira Sato, who received that gift on behalf of, of his church in Japan. And he had tears in his eyes as he sh shared the story. He said, far more than the, the hundreds of thousands that came out of the United States, that $3,200 gift from Haiti lifted the spirits of his entire congregation and made them believe again that God will deliver them. Now, the thing about it is, it says that they gave even beyond their means. What that says is they didn't just give so that their livestock could remain neutral, but they gave in a way that they were worse off than before they gave. I find that in stark contrast to the generally accepted American way of giving, which is I have a baseline standard of living, a certain expectation that my family needs to have these things, this kind of lifestyle, and as long as I can protect that, whatever extra I have, I will give generously. That's a good place to be. It's better than average, I can tell you that. Most people don't even get to that place where they will set a baseline living standard and then give extra to God. But here's what this kind of giving is. I will actually go down a couple notches in lifestyle so that somebody else might be able to live. They gave even beyond their ability. And if you flip to the next slide, please. <clears throat> I'm sorry, is this... Go one more. Ah, uh, never mind. Oh, yeah, one more, one more. There it is. When we give this way, the person we're imitating is Jesus himself. We forget that just becoming human was a massive step down for Jesus. He was part of the eternal trinity with God in essence and completely in unity. And to take on human form was not a step up for God. I know we like the human form, but do you realize this meat jacket we're wearing isn't the highest form of existence? Jesus had to endure the dignity of diarrhea, gas, acne. He didn't get a special body that was perfect. 
He got a human body. Do you realize that he took on the indignities of being human? And he didn't start as this Adonis-like adult male. He was born a baby, and another human being had to change his diaper for years. Think about that, how patient, how fully embracing of our plight and our condition Jesus was. And what the Bible teaches us, what Paul's saying is he became poor, not just the same or less rich. He became something qualitatively lower than what he was so that others could become what he used to be. There's no justice in that. That's like us giving so much to the Haitians that they become millionaires and we're the poorest country in the Western Hemisphere. It's, it's the kind of logic that the world just spits out and rejects. That's crazy talk. Why should I take a hit off my standard of living so others could have something? Then it just flip-flops our positions. And that to us is unacceptable. The assumption is I must stay where I am and I will help you get closer to me. But godly giving says, even if I have to be in a worse neighborhood, here I go. I just hung out last week with some guys in the inner city of Chicago um, who were planting house churches. And these guys grew up suburban. They have young children. Every night, they hear gunfire outside their house. I'm not exaggerating when I say every night. I remember sitting in the living room thinking, I don't know if I want my babies growing up in this neighborhood, riding their bikes out there. They've had some scary moments. But for them, this was the life-altering decision that defined everything. They prayed, God pressed it on their hearts, and they moved into the neighborhood. And that's what Jesus did for us. I want to paint for you a picture, not just of an incremental ratcheting up of our giving, but a whole new way of thinking about what our privilege is with respect to the kingdom of God. Let me give you another mark of a generous spirit, is that it first gives itself to God. I think that if he had told them the news about the, the suffering in Jerusalem and the Macedonians and Corinthians had sent some money, that would have been pretty good. That would have been his expectation. But these people exceeded his expectation because out of this call to give, they experienced a renewal of their own hearts towards God. It wasn't like, oh, another need. Here's a check. Now can we just take a break for a while? But through the act of giving, they first presented their own hearts to God and said, God, we can't give money this way until we relinquish money's grip on our hearts. And so the only way you're going to actually become truly generous is if before you write a check, you give away your heart to God. I don't think any giving is legitimate that first comes out of a desire to pay God off or to relieve ourselves of guilt. That's not the giving God wants. But what he wants first is a heart that belongs to him because the money will always follow the heart. Do you see how that works? And so before you give anything, the first thing you've got to settle is who has my heart? You know why it's not hard for me to feed my wife and children? I'm not always going, oh, you guys need more milk. You're such an expensive group of people. I don't write checks and grumble. I, I want to give my family more. I wish I could buy my wife a Lexus. I wish I could take my kids to Hawaii. 
I wish, I wish, I wish. I wish so many things. My heart is not the problem. My wallet's the problem. Because they have my heart already, my money will follow where my heart has gone. Don't you see how that works? Flip to the next slide. Look what it says. One more. Jesus said in his own words, no one can serve two masters. You can't love two different masters. You will either hate one and love the other or vice versa. And the real question that we're all wrestling through on a regular basis is who really is my master? Not who would I claim it to be, but what would an auditor walking through my life, peeking at everything, including my bank book, conclude is the master of my life? I've learned that it's easy to fool most of the people all the time. I could fool you very easily. You don't know me very well. But what if somebody had full access to everything? What if somebody had your W-2? What if somebody had access to your online banking? What if somebody had a 24-hour surveillance camera trained on you all the time? Instead of telling others what, what masters you, what would your life reveal about who has your heart? I've talked to so many people who say, you know, I love my family the most. That's why I do everything for them. And I say, well, I'm watching you, and you're never with your family. Uh, so I know you, you work like 89 hours a week for your family, but they don't know who you are. Your kids like, call you Ajashi. And, you know, like <laughs> it's not right. You're claiming something with your mouth that your life is actually denying is true. Which is the truer statement? Which is more real? What you say or what you do? I think Jesus would say, one is the proof of the other. You see that? One is the proof of the other. I'm going to tell you, I had an incident on the plane coming here that I'm, I'm going to share with you because it doesn't flatter me. It reveals to you how bad of a Christian I actually am. <laughs> it's been, I, I've flown about a half million miles in recent years. And I fly a lot. And one of my, my big grudges is on American carriers, you, they don't even give you peanuts anymore. If you're lucky, they give you a little, like, dwarf-sized bag of pretzels, like three pretzels. That, why even waste the cellophane, you know? And so I remember the old days when you got a meal for free, and I just, it just galls me. And so it's been one of my sources of bitterness that I have to swipe a credit card to buy my own food on a plane. I was starving when I got on the flight coming out here. The ladies are coming down the aisle and say, do you have any food available for sale? My least favorite question. And then they said, yeah, we have this nut package with crackers and cheese and eight bucks. So I hand her to my card. She goes, well, I, the other flight attendant has the, the little card reader. Let me just come back and hit you later. So I'm like, fine. I put the card away. I'm eating, and I'm noticing as they're cleaning up, nobody's asked me for the money yet. And in my fleshly mind, I'm going, oh, my God, I think it's happening. I'm, I'm getting my free food from an airline. I'm getting justice, finally. And I was rejoicing, thinking, I can't wait to go and tell my wife, I saved eight bucks. And then the Spirit of God got a hold of me. You moron. You are on your way to preach the Word of God to a church that has been waiting in fasting and prayer. And your first act en route is to steal 
from the people that are giving you a ride. I wish I could tell you, hearing God's voice, I just went, oh, Lord, I'm sorry. But I fought for like a half hour. I'm like, but God, this is never going to happen again. I have one chance to stick it to the man. Can't I just this one time? I mean, I offered the card. I did it. They didn't take it. What am I supposed to do? And I wrestled. I'm a pastor. I'm wrestling 30 minutes over $8. Finally, I just couldn't handle it. God, I can't start this way. So I said, excuse me, um, you forgot to take my money. She goes, oh, my goodness. I would have totally forgot. Thank you for being so honest. I was expecting more like kneeling by my seat going, you know, I've had a lot of passengers, but no one ever. (laughs) Maybe like, do you have a specific religious viewpoint that makes you do things like this? Nothing like that. Just, oh, thank you for being so honest. And she walked away. But I, I remember thinking something just happened in that little encounter that reset my attitude towards money again. How quickly I forget where I'm supposed to be. And really what that battle was about on that plane was who has my heart? Who's my master? If Jesus were not my master, I can promise you 100,000% I would have free crackers and cheese in my belly still. I would never have paid it. But it was as if the voice of my master would not let it go. And I kept going, shut up, Lord, please, just leave it alone. And he would not stop. And he picked at that scab till it started bleeding. I went, fine. Here's your eight bucks. And with that simple grudging act, I felt like Jesus got my heart back. Do you get that? That's how good God is. He gives you sermon illustrations on the flight over. Amazing. Let me give another, another thing quickly here. A generous spirit keeps its promises. A generous spirit keeps its promises. I found, if you hit the next slide there, he's saying, look, you Corinthians, you made big promises, but it's really important now to follow through. I've found in life that it's a lot easier to make a promise than to keep a promise. How many of you know that's true? You know when you find that out the most? January 3rd. When that's the death of all your resolutions. The last one. I'm going to wake up at 4 in the morning and jog 18 miles and then read 16 chapters of the Bible. And uh, yeah, no, you're not. Yes, I am. I'm just going to eat broccoli and celery every day for lunch and dinner. And No, you're not. Yes, I am. And January 1st and 2nd are the most glorious days of your life, aren't they? You're like, I am made new. I am version 2.0. I'm going to be awesome. And January 3rd, you go, oh, yeah, I forgot who I really was. I'm a loser. <laughs> I quit. <laughs> I don't mean to discourage you. I'm just, I'm being facetious, but that's 95% of our experience, isn't it? Big promises, so hard to follow through. How many of you have exercise equipment that you use to hang your dry cleaning? <laughs> that's right. The treadmill is one of the greatest laundry dryers, isn't it? In fact, you sometimes go, I can't use it because we're drying something. You're like, that's not what it's for. Buy a dryer. It's so easy to make a promise because it is free. Making promises is free. Keep them is very expensive. Mom, I'll do the homework after we get back. It feels so good to say stuff like that. Mom, I'll do it later. Okay. And then you come back and you're really tired and like, do your homework. (sighs) Sucks. Just so hard. 
Why? Because making a promise is exciting. Keeping it is really difficult. If you flip to the next slide, you read one chapter later, he says, can I just remind you that, in fact, it was your enthusiasm that made the Macedonians inspired in the first place. The Corinthians were the first church to shout out loudly to the region, we in Corinth will stand with our brothers in Jerusalem. In a way, it was kind of like their responsibility because they were the richest brother in the family. So it was like, yes, we will give lots of money to our poor, poverty-stricken brothers. And they said it very loudly, and all the other people in the region were like, Dang, that's awesome. We should do that too. So the Corinthians inspired the Macedonians, but like so often happens, those inspired outpace those who inspired. Do you know how many times I've come to find out that disciples live more fulfilling lives than the discipler? One of the occupational hazards of being pastors is that we feel like we're the exceptions to all the rules, that we're close to God even without the spiritual disciplines. I can't tell you how many pastors I've met who discouraged me with their work ethic, their laziness, their lack of a devotional life. On Sundays at their pulpits, spewing words that have not worked in their own heart first. That's why I said I was so happy to meet Pastor D.L. He and several others really renewed, restored my confidence in pastors. They are the real deal. And you are blessed beyond imagination that God put this man here. I'd like to hire him away and uh, do some amazing things in Chicago with this brother, but his heart is already buried here with you. I, I couldn't seduce him to come with me no matter what I offered. Could I? <laughs> this guy, he loves you. And, and you know, it, I'm telling you, it's so easy. It's so easy to inspire and then not follow through yourself. So he's telling the Corinthians, it's, it's really important, not just that you feel the conviction. He wasn't casting any doubt on what they actually felt. Where he was casting doubt was on whether they would allow that conviction to grow or to die. It's up to you whether the movements of God in your life flourish or perish. And the truth is, what you do in the next 24 hours will probably have everything to do with whether what you feel now will die or grow. I'm being generous when I say 24 hours. In, in most places where I preach this, I've been saying the next 15 minutes. Um, but some people said, that's crazy. It settle down a little. Maybe the next hour, the next day. But here's what I mean. The very next step you, you actively take to follow through on a conviction, that will determine whether it grows or not. You know, m- my children love animals. They inherited that from me and my wife. We had so many pets over the years. Countless rodents, birds, crabs, turtles, lizards. I raised a chameleon in my office for like two years, fed it crickets every day. We have these killer fish. Fish in my office, I I asked the guy at the pet store, if I put a piranha, will the piranha kill these fish? He goes, no, these fish will kill the piranha by the morning. So we love animals. But you know, here's how it works in most families, okay? The kids go... Mm, we want a puppy. Because they see a puppy at the store, it's so cute. We want a puppy. What they're really saying is, we want all the benefits of a puppy. We don't want any of the cost and responsibility of a puppy. We want to play with a puppy. Can you get us a puppy? And the parents here, um, you have to walk the dog five times a day. You have to clean up the poo and pee from the carpet. You have to pay for the vet bills. You have to get the shots. You have to get the collar. And you, 
You have to house train it. So the parents, all they're hearing is the responsibility. Stupid parents buy their kids a puppy. (laughs) Now, here's the thing. What if you bought your kids a puppy, but you said, look, it's your puppy. I'm literally not going to do a single thing for it. You know what happened to most of those puppies? A week later, you're like, hey, where's Momoli? I don't hear any bark. Where's... And you'll find this dead dog curled behind the couch, flies buzzing on its eyeballs, and you're like, what happened? Um, That's what happens to things that inspire you, but you don't feed them, take care of them, follow through on them, be responsible. That's what happens when you want something, but you don't cultivate something. It dies. And it makes your house smell really bad. And then here's what the kids will do. First one died. Mom, we want another puppy. We want another puppy because it was so fun when we first brought that other puppy home. This is us spiritually. You know, Pastor, we, we want another word from the Lord. We want to feel alive again. We want to be moved. We want conviction. We want knowledge. We want wisdom. Give us something good this Sunday. I could just as easily say, where's that last one? Remember you took it home last Sunday? You're feeling it? Which couch am I going to find a dead behind? What do the hallways of your soul smell like? Is it littered with the carcasses of warm, fuzzy convictions that were so alive the moment God gave them to you, but they died of neglect over time? That's the most graphic illustration I could come up with. (laughs) Because I'm going to tell you right now, if Jesus walked through some of our souls, it would smell putrid. And he would ask you, why do you really need another conviction? To keep all the other dead bodies company? (laughs) Is that why? Are we collecting dead puppies or are we raising puppies into doghood? Do you know what I'm saying? See, I I preached this once in Philadelphia the same weekend that 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 missionary girl in my church committed suicide. I got a text from her just before I took the pulpit to preach this message. And then after I finished preaching that message, at the end I said, what you decide with the feelings in your heart right now, God is stirring in some of you very strongly. Others of you, you have no idea what I just said, but some of you, it's like this. Something's really on your mind. And I told them, what you do in the next 15 minutes will make all the difference between whether God will cause this thing to grow or to die. Right after the message, this one woman came up to me very sophisticated, smartly dressed. Um, you could tell she was a born leader. Uh, a, a tall African-American woman who was a doctor. Just became a doctor, finishing it. She said, you know, I don't know what it is, but something in your message has got a hold of my heart at just the right time in my life. And I'm supposed to do something. And God just made me feel very strongly like I'm supposed to clear out my wallet and give you all the cash I had. So uncomfortable. I didn't wait for you to give it to me. She goes, no, I'm not giving it to you. I'm entrusting it to you. I feel like I'm supposed to give it to the Lord. I think you're supposed to do something with this money. It's 240 bucks. I took it. I felt so uncomfortable putting it in my pocket like I was stealing. But I'm like, all right, Lord, that's your money. It's got to go to something. She felt you speak. Now you got to speak to me. Connect that last dot. What is this for? I didn't know at the time that my sister had taken her own life. When I got home and I heard the shocking news and then all the aftermath, I realized what that money was for. She had, when she was alive, such a deeply broken heart for the orphans of Haiti. That's what she had given her life to. 
And uh, I remember sitting with her many times as she shared about it. So that money became the seed money for a foundation. And it's growing, and it's going to take care of orphans in Haiti. That's the amazing way that God works. And because that sister in Philadelphia responded in a concrete way that moment to something God was doing in her heart, she became the seed funder for a foundation she has no idea even exists right now. We recently sent off an email to let her know what had happened to that money. And think about the encouragement that will bring to her own faith journey. And the only difference between her and many others in that room is that she actually obeyed the Lord in that moment and others went home blessed. And really today in the church, blessed is just another way of saying, I really agreed with that. That kept me awake. That dude was funny. I'm blessed. Nobody cares if you are blessed. What they care about is if you are blessed to become a blessing. If the blessing was so alive, it can't be contained in your own heart. It wasn't just given for you to feel good, but for you to come alive. So that like his hand in a puppet, you become his instrument and you experience what he would experience if he were living your life. That's blessing. Liking a sermon is not blessing. Living a sermon with Jesus Christ side by side, that's blessing. And the difference maker most of the time boils down to what you decide to actually do in the next hour. I'll give you another illustration. There were, I was preaching at a, a, a junior high conference. And I asked, how many of you boys are addicted to internet pornography? pastor didn't ask me to say that. I just felt so compelled. And he was like, oh, come on, these are young kids. 90% of them raised their hand and came forward. I thought he was going to have a heart attack right there in the room because he didn't know this about his own church. And here's what I told many of them. I, I shared with them Jesus' words about if your right eye causes you to sin, pluck it out. Unless you are hardwired to the matrix, you are using a machine to look at all that stuff. And here's what I said to them. If you're really serious about beating this thing in your life, call your parents right now and tell them, Mom, Dad, I can't have a computer that I use alone. It's got to be in your bedroom. You've got to have the password. If I can't handle that, I've got to go to the library every time I need to use a computer. I can't have my laptop at home. Get rid of it. Pluck it out. They're all like, oh, yeah, yeah, that probably makes sense. Only one of them did it. He's the only one that got victory in that area of his life. Everyone else agreed with me, but when it finally came down to all the inconveniences of not having a computer, they're like, you know what? I've got to take the porn along with everything else because I need my computer. I can't actually do what I feel I'm supposed to do. Now, I'm not saying this to judge them, but simply make the observation out of that entire retreat, only one child actually grew in the area where he was most weighed down. 99 others thought about growing. And have you ever heard the riddle, five birds are sitting on a wire, four of them decide to fly away, how many are left? Five. Because deciding to fly away and flying away are two very different things. <laughs> Amen? <laughs> we call some good old-fashioned southern wisdom for you. 
follow-through matters, brothers and sisters. And I think your spiritual condition would be explained more by follow-through than any other thing. I love hearing Pastor DL stand up and talk in between things. I get the sense that he has the heart of God and he says things that are worth hearing. Do you agree with that? Do you know how lucky you are to have a good preacher? How many churches have to endure horrible preaching week after week? It's painful. It's very painful. You're so blessed to have a good preacher that God has given to you. But the reason he's given him is because he has great plans for the lives sitting in these seats. Let me close with one last observation. Okay? (laughs) One back? One back. There you go. We don't really like this verse, but it's true. From everyone who has been given much, much will be demanded. And from the one who has been entrusted with much, much more will be added. How many of you are college students? Okay. So it's very likely that right now you're actively tithing because 10% of zero is zero. (laughs) Right? Usually... um, College students are the best tithers in the church because they are exactly, they in fact, some of them are giving 50% of their zero income. Those are golden years. Tell everybody I give halfway. But you know, here's the thing. Even though college students claim they have no money, I made that same claim. I'm like, I don't, I don't make any money. How am I supposed to make sense of tithing when I have no money? And tithing, I don't teach as a requirement in my church, but I just use it as a convenient baseline, Okay. Here's what I did realize. So I was gaining 15 pounds my freshman year eating pizza. And in those days, I could put down a large pizza by myself. I thought, if I can buy new sweaters, new CDs, I'm going to movies, I'm buying pizza, where is that money coming from? And I realized it's because my parents were still sending me a little bit of money. I wasn't earning the income, but that was my income. It was money passing into my hands to manage according to my own values. I learned tithing in college. While earning zero, I gave away 10% of every penny that crossed my hand. If you don't learn it when you have nothing, I promise you'll never learn it when you're a baller. Ever. If you can't give away one penny on every dime, you'll never give away 100000 off of a million. You'll never do it. It's not psychologically possible. Even if you think you have nothing, you have more than most. Hit that next slide. Let me show you something. i got to brag a little bit. There's this thing called the global rich list. You put in your annual income, and it tells you where you rank in the world's wealth. I don't mean to brag, but I'm the 46,688,821st richest dude on this planet. (laughs) Respect. (laughs) Now, you may not think that's like exactly the most boast-worthy ranking, but look on the right side of that. That's a direct screen capture from the website. I'm in the top 0.77% of the world's wealthiest people. I'm in the top 1%, y'all, and I'm a pastor. Yeah? I know the, first, the only thing half you're going to remember from the sermon is that URL. You can be like, I want to see where I rank. <laughs> I know how it works. Memorize it. 
But instead of bragging, going, yeah, I beat him. I'm four, 40, 5 million. Listen, the point is, even if I feel all the time like I don't have very much money, I have more than 99% of the world. This has been confirmed to me every time I travel. And I have seen so much of God's world. So much of it. And everywhere I go, I can't shake the feeling, my goodness, I am rich. I am so rich. And if I can live in this country, blessed the way I am, and not feel what God feels when he looks at his world, I'm dead inside. I have no excuse because much has been entrusted to me. I really believe much is expected of me. And I don't want to be a pastor who gives by getting other people to give. I I really feel convicted I also need to give. I am amazed at how many people actually think the pastors don't tithe or give offering. I ask them people, do you think that I give? And they're like, why would you give? Isn't it like just writing a check to yourself? (laughs) It's amazing that's what we grew up thinking. I was once writing my offering, checking this guy next to me. He's like, what are you doing? Look, I'm giving my offering, dummy. What are you doing? He's watching me. Why don't you do the same thing? <laughs> and so I'm not saying this to you as somebody who's trying to get others to be faithful to God. I'm on a journey myself of learning to be far more faithful than I've been. And even out of my need, as I give, God is doing something powerful in our lives. And you know what the greatest blessing is? My children are learning to be generous. They weren't born that way, I promise you. They're the most wicked children ever born by nature, and God is redeeming them. Just the other day, I walked into my baby daughter's room. Baby, she's seven, but she's still my baby. She had a little cardboard box, and she had written on there, Zoe's Adoption Fund. Please give for all the moms and dads that want a baby. And she had emptied out half of her save jar into this thing. And she's going to bring it to church and encourage people to give. Nobody taught her that. Whenever we get a letter from a friend going on a missions trip, we have learned now not just to write a check, but to sit down at the dinner table and ask our children, do you guys want to give? And I feel very much like Paul to the Macedonian because my, my children are like, Yeah, I'll give like 50 bucks. I'm like, settle down. (laughs) 50 bucks? I wasn't asking for 50 bucks. Why don't you give like five? They'll think it's cute. No, Dad, I think I want to just give 50. Grandma gave me 50 bucks for Christmas. I want to give 50. I'm so humbled by my children. They're better than I am. And for me, that has been the greatest thrill is that my children are learning not to think of themselves first. That really makes my heart leap. I don't say that to boast, but to say this. Generosity begets generosity. Watching and receiving generosity almost always produces generosity in others. And wouldn't you rather live in a generous world than a selfish world? I don't think anyone in this room will ever spend the majority of their lives below the top 1%. And if you go to university, you are among an elite. Anywhere from 4 to 10% of the world's population gets to go to college. For many years, it was only 2 to 3%, and it's growing now. 
So just going to college is not a matter of course. If you grow up in an Asian church, duh, you know, we even have college groups. As if everyone's just supposed to go to college. I had one guy who was a sailor in the Navy. He went, um, Pastor Dave, I'm like 19, but I'm a sailor. And everyone I meet, they're like, where do you go to college? I don't go to college. Am I allowed to come here? <laughs> and I was like, what? <laughs> he, because everyone assumed you go to college at his age. There's no other pathway in life. So we changed it from college group to young adult group. Why even say college group when not everyone's in college? Young adult, isn't that you? No, we're adults now. I got, I got 15-year-old kid. When do I get to become an adult? Why do I always have to be a young adult? I ain't young anymore. 18 to 22, that's young adult. 22 and over, you just better grow up and become an adult. You get it? I don't even know why I started talking about that, except to say, <laughs> you may think, you may think that you have nothing, but I promise you, you will have more than most. You better bear that responsibility well. If you're growing in Christ and your relationship to money is not following that growth, I think that right away casts great doubt on the depth of the growth. The single greatest competitor for the human heart to God is material blessing, money. That's why Jesus and that's why all of Scripture talks about it more than any other topic. Over 4,000 verses dealing with money and possessions. Jesus talked about money more than he talked about heaven and hell. Because he knows that that's the one thing that will sink our journey with him faster than anything else. And so I pray for you that God will never give you a penny more than your faith can handle. I pray for you that he will curse you with poverty if it will make you spiritually rich. And that if you have a heart that belongs to Jesus, he will embarrass you with wealth. I am so grateful for James and Casey and their hospitality to me this weekend. They have a beautiful home, but I feel like it's not just their house, it's the church's house, man. What family has like eight dining tables? <laughs> That's just so weird to me. <laughs> And I'm so grateful for people who have things, but all those things belong to another. And if, if God has your heart, then may he give you everything else. Because in your hands, it will turn into something amazing. Would you join me in prayer? You know, guilt is the worst motivator for a Godward life. Whatever you do because you feel guilty will not last and will not cause your soul to thrive. The only sustainable motive for a Godward life is that your heart is captivated by the worthiness of God, by the beauty of Jesus Christ. And so as we've spent all this time talking about money, what I ask of you is not to focus on your relationship to money, but to fix your eyes on Jesus who is worthy of everything. And first pray this, God, before you have a penny of my money, I want you to have my whole heart. Because invariably, your money and everything else will go where your heart is. So let's spend a little bit of time 
Just getting our hearts before God and transferring our hearts to him. And then I'll, I'll let Pastor D.L. take the service from there. Let's pray. As we um, continue to pray, as Pastor Dave says, what we do in the next moments of our journey is going to determine what, whether we allow this to give life or whether it dies within us. I think for, for some of us, God's really been convicting and, and speaking to our hearts and Maybe it's in the area of, of that, of the tithe. Where we just feel like, hey, you know what? I don't think I can do it. But God's saying, will you go on this journey with me, a journey of faith, and will you dare to believe that I can take care of your needs? Maybe for others, it's we, we have that 10%. We can give it, but just feel like it would, it would be 10% less for other things and and it's a values clarification of whether we will invest in treasures on earth or treasures in heaven. Maybe for some of us, it's, it's in this feeling like we need to set a better example for the generation to come behind us, for our children. Maybe for some of us, I think for a lot of us, there's a conviction about how much money we spend on food when... So many are unable to eat. And he's challenging us to a, a lifestyle of less so that others could have more, that others could have some, others could have something. Can we just uh, make a prayer of commitment, of surrender, if you're in that place? If you're ready and you just feel like the tug of God, then let's just take that step of faith and just pray that to the Lord. and others may not be there yet, that's okay. Let's just pray, God, make me more generous than I am now. Make me more aware of the wonder of grace than I am now. We're going to come to the table in just a few moments, the table of grace. And perhaps after we come to this place, it would help you to continue to to pray through commitment, decision, surrender. But let's pray for just another half minute as we uh, respond to the word of the Lord.
Father in heaven, we thank you so much for this word that was planted in us, and we thank you that you're not trying to dig your hand into our pockets and, and steal our wallet. God, you're, you're wanting our hearts because that's where we find joy and satisfaction is when we're living under the beautiful lordship of Jesus Christ. Thank you that that's what you want, and our, our hearts are so often tied to our finances. That's what your word says in Matthew. And so, Father, we pray that as one goes, the other would follow, and that you would move us and that you would stir us to action steps of faith, believing that not only will this change the way that we live, but it will change the way others live for the glory of God and for the blessing and joy of those whom we may not even know. What a privilege to be able to stand before you on the other side, clothed in grace, and then to see people whose faces we've never seen before, who say thank you for your generosity that has won me into the kingdom. What a joy. What a blessing. We never lose when we give. Thank you so much. We give because you gave. We love because you love. We pray these things in Jesus' name.